All right, Jack, back again. Here we are. Get some, get some goodies. Yes, if that's the way you want to think about it. <laughs> All right. To our loving audience, uh, Jess and I have both been spending a little bit of time, because we've been doing a lot of work in the AI space lately, reviewing uh, the White House's most recent announcements uh, that include, first off, this fact sheet about the executive order advancing protections uh, for all of us as citizens here in the United States uh, against the potential misuse of AI. Uh, and also, we took the time to review the proposed blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights, which is actually called out in this document as well. And both of them have been interesting reads, if not particularly satisfying. We figured it'd be fun to share some of them with you in our, over the next couple of episodes. It'll be a two-parter. Part one, fact sheet. Part two, Bill of Rights. Okay. Fact sheet. Fact sheet. Let's just set the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the fact sheet is uh, is basically the FAQs for the executive order to ensure that America sees the way or le- leads the way in seizing the promise of managing the risks of artificial intelligence. Mm. Part of their Biden-Harris administration's comprehensive strategy for responsible innovation. Yes. What's your take on the executive order? The very first thing that struck me in reading it, and as the audience knows and as you have to deal with all the time, I worry, I've always worried a lot about software security. Mm-hmm. And the, the effort here appears to have completely ignored the last 30 years of software development where we've simply allowed people to write almost whatever they want and then not punish them if the software is really horrible. And so there's a lot of things that are called out here, and we can make, we'll make some spe- specific examples during the episode. But there are things that are called out here that would make a great idea for software, right? Because the, the basic premise for me, at least, in reading through this, there's a formulation for all of the things that happen inside the executive order. It says, because there is this new technology, and because that new technology will automate, improve, change the way that people live their lives and do their jobs and what have you, we have to make sure that it's safe. Now, insert anything, right? Insert the diesel motor, insert the railroad, insert, for the purposes of this discussion, software, and now it's insert AI. And I think for those last two, where we're talking about technology, I think we have been shown a unique set of difficulties in trying to balance that relationship between being excited about the new tech and trying to find ways to secure it. Okay, so the long list of items you just gave is uh, a list of initiatives that have been aspirational at best. Mm -hmm. And now we have this other thing called artificial intelligence that is ostensibly going to make all those things easier and complete that we couldn't figure out in the first place. But now we're seemingly going to automate some of these things to fix the problems that we've had in the past. Or not automate it directly, but automate everything around it. Whoa. Stick with your initial impression there, (laughs) boss man. Because, in fact, if you look through it on the second page of the fact sheet, it actually says, to establish an advanced cybersecurity program to develop AI tools to find and fix vulnerabilities in critical software. So maybe the fact that um, as a nation, we decided to not pursue as hard as perhaps we could have, making software safer, maybe AI will be the way that we go back and fix the untold billions of lines of software that may actually have errors in them. Satire. (laughs) 
Okay. Uh, yeah, so I think in general, so if our readers, our readers, our listeners are interested in taking a view through this, it's broken down pretty intuitively into how do we make it safe and secure. So maybe what we can do, Justin, is just take a quick run through this and highlight what may potentially be some difficulties in some of the aspirational notes here. Um, first one I'll direct to you is this requirement that people who are building AI systems have to share, at least with the federal government, how they're testing it to make sure it's safe enough, how they're perhaps red teaming it or how they're making sure that it's not poisonable. But they're going to have to demonstrate before it's sort of released how they're sure that it's safe. Do you think that that's practical? No. No, I mean, and here, here's the thing, right? There's so many lessons learned from other, uh, other areas of technology um, that we've had similar aspirations that have been equally complex that we've just, we just haven't been able to pull off, right? And one of them is uh, uh, cryptocurrency and wallets, right? Hmm. Um, there, there's some very clear standards. As it, and this, this is one example of many. There's some clear standards on um, making a crypto wallet that is commercially consumable. There's audit standards. There's rigor around it. There's all these checks you're supposed to go through to prove that this is a viable and safe with the correct protection mechanisms for public consumption. There are audit bodies who specialize in this very thing. Contrary to popular belief, like we, we still have breaches from cryptocurrencies. And, you know, it's, it's best effort. Like people are trying to do the best they possibly can, but some of these things are super complex, multifaceted, and really like when it comes to human analysis, especially when you're doing audits of some of these technologies, you can only see what's in front of you. You can't see all the tentacles of all the places that reach behind you. This to me is another great example of it. It's saying like, listen, you can put in whatever audit standard you want to test it. And you can have whoever you want to test it. You can have the smartest person in the world test this. But the reality is they can only see the code set that's going to be in front of them. And it's going to be hard to trace that all the way through. It's like looking at uh, API integrations in, your, in an object class that's being programmed. Like mm -hmm. you can see the object class, you can see it calls the API, but you don't know what's happening in the background. It's the same thing here. So like history is like keeps repeating itself and we're just like, yep, we're going to audit and test it. And the exact same thing is going to happen again. So let me, let me ask you a question about maybe we treat this a little bit differently. Yeah. If I look at uh, an area where there has been success, right, in regulating something that's super complicated, um, a couple of areas. Let's talk about pharmaceuticals and let's talk about transportation. Yeah. So if I create a new drug, right, and I release it into the world, it goes through a certain set of things. It gets regulated in a very specific way. And if it's horrible, first off, the regulator sort of catches it's not a lot out there. But if it does get out there and it's horrible, I get sued and I go out of business and it's really horrible. So I have a financial incentive to do the right thing. If I think about the beginnings of tort law when the railroads were crossing the country, yeah. right? There were people getting hurt all the time because nobody really cared. They were sort of like part of the pavement and it was horrible, right? But then people were allowed to be sued. Railroads were allowed to be sued. And it changed their behavior. Uh, auto manufacturers, right, with cars that have problems and safe at any speed, right? So Ralph Nader. So you've got all these other issues, similarly complicated, similarly economy changing, right? 
But I would argue that the difference is in those times, we relied on the jurisprudence system Mm -hmm. to generate a positive incentive for doing the right thing beyond the fact that the, the administration says it would be nice to do so. And I think that's probably where I see we've fallen down. And I don't have the recipe for how to do it correctly, right? But the fact that one typically cannot be sued because the thing they built in software isn't working the way it was supposed to. You yeah. can't be sued um, if the thing is too easy, easy to tip over so people are hurt by it, right? We have eliminated that law or that capability of law to create a negative incentive for people to be lazy or for people not to think too hard about making this new thing they're building secure. How do you feel about the introduction of traditionally the liability process and tort law as a function for either developing software, or in this case, specifically around AI, if the thing turns out to be unsafe? I don't, I'm not sure it totally applies here. Okay. So there's, there's a couple things that, um, that came to mind when you were talking about w- one is like we talking about the pharmaceutical industry there if you follow their regulations and their steps it takes a really long time to bring something out of the market there's a lot of checks there's uh populations that need to be tested and, and there's all these trial things that have to go on i'm i'm not going to even get into it because i know i'm not going to do it any justice and there's gonna be someone listening to it that's going to take issue with it but it's long. Their process sure. is long. We, sure. we can agree that. It's 10 or 15 years in a lot of cases. There is no way anybody's waiting this. Like, 10 or 15 years from now, like, we're not even going to talk about AI. We're going to be talking about quantum whatever. Right, right, right. So that, that's this one side of it. Then the other side is, like, when you talk about, I'm just, like, the one I'm looking at here, I'm talking about this one, right? Uh, the one you read. Establish an advanced cybersecurity program to develop AI tools to find and fix vulnerabilities in critical software. So, like, what ha- use AI doesn't work, doesn't fix the vulnerabilities, or maybe it's a zero day and the AI model hasn't been trained for it or it doesn't have the right nodes in place to capture that. Maybe you're not using the right graph constructs to mm-hmm. do it. And so what happens if it, mixes? it misses, right? And zero day gets through, right? Is that the AI's fault? And then, But more importantly, can you prove proximate harm? Fair enough. But should you have to prove that you tried to do something? Like, right now, I don't think you even have to prove that you in a single use case. Yeah. Or is there a middle ground? Right. And I agree with you, by the way. And I also, particularly because of the fact that if our nation were to say, you get no software for 10 years because we really have to do a good job of testing it, then they really just buy their software from someplace else because it takes yeah. five minutes. Yeah. China. Yeah. 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 And uh, just any, any marketplace that doesn't demand that same level of restriction. Myself, I like the idea of it. Totally aspirational. Well, a number of months ago, we had a great conversation in an earlier episode that will stick in the show notes about the president suggesting that there may be liability for folks who deliver software services that prove to have been insufficiently tested and are therefore making people vulnerable, right? And so that, that appears to me, at least, to be sort of a, trying to create a standard to do care. Yeah. This is like the minimum you should have done. Did you do that? No. Okay, you're a bad person. Give me some money, right? Give the victim mm-hmm. some money as opposed to your 10-year process, because you're right, that'll make nobody do anything ever, right? So maybe maybe that's a better way. But to your point earlier about how there have been other complicated technology advancements in the past that we've sort of dropped the ball and we haven't been able to execute to, mm-hmm. I'd be interested to see if anything has happened with that executive order. 
it's probably six months ago, I'm going to guess. I'm looking over at McDubswell because she'll know. But it's, it's probably six months ago we had that episode. I wonder if there has been a single element of it actually implemented to hold someone responsible for any of the breaches that have happened in the intervening six months. Do you want to bet on that? Uh, we'd be on the same <laughs> side of it, right? Yeah. So the odds will be low. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you need uh, you need federal muscle to be able to enforce it. And, I mean, there's entire agencies and divisions that I can't even staff today with people, right? Mm-hmm. Take, take whatever audit body you want, IRS, whatever. They just they can't find enough people to keep up with it, yeah. right? As I was hearing you talk, the first thing that comes to mind is um, penetration testing standards. Hmm. NIST is very clear, like what constitutes a penetration test. If memory serves me correctly, it's NIST 800-115, which is the prescribed standards on how to, um, like all, all the aspects that should go into a penetration test, sure. do care, everything that's in there. Um, and if it's not 115, we'll make sure there's there's links that's, that are in there. Um, but still, today, there are people who, who I don't even think know this standard exists, they're just rolling off vulnerability scans, be like, pen test, nailed it, <laughs> and that will pass your PCI and HIPAA test, right? Um, and there's like, there's no one enforcing it. But that is that is as codified as you can get. And it's just like, people just like gloss so over. So enforcement of the codification. That's a really nice point. I like that. So if there is a standard of due care, they have to understand that they're going to have to enforce it or people just won't do it. And I guess that's why a lot of the wording in here is should, right? And, and should is just not helpful. Yeah. So I would say, uh, imagine a scenario where um, we we don't have police officers enforcing traffic laws. Mm. You think everybody's going to drive a speed limit? I find it unlikely. And we're going to do it now when there exactly. are police out there. Yeah. But there's always that fear that you're going to get caught that like sometimes they're like, I really want to drive 85, but I think there might be a cop. So I'm going to like slow it down to 75 just so I can hit the brake and get 65. There just you go. When I go around the corner. Yeah. I like it. Um, so I, I think we are, we're so far away from it. And it's like, I don't know. I, I think it's a reach portion of it. That's a, that's a no fly for me. I don't, I, I don't know how you pull it off. Cool. I'm going to switch tracks and go to the next codicil, <laughs> which talks about protecting Americans privacy. So here, the sort of the assertion is AI is going to make all of us more vulnerable because it's going to take more of our private information. And I think one of the extrapolations is that if I use AI in the proper way, I can gather sort of tangentially related orthogonal data sets and derive conclusions that, again, violate my privacy. Um, It appears kind of like the horse is out of the barn on this, the horse, the hay, you know, the pitchfork walked out, like everything's out of the barn on this, because I'm going to protect Americans' privacy while it's already been over a decade, two decades, since social media platforms just started farming everybody's data out. So it's all gone anyway. All of your stuff is gone. And you click on the EULA, you say, hey, it's okay, you can have some of my data because I'm shopping on your site or I'm interacting with your your social media experience. So I think this one is kind of silly, right? Uh, of all of the codicils, and there's there's a lot in this, but that the idea that AI will be the beachhead on which I decide to defend Americans' privacy is a little bit silly considering that it's already gone. It's completely gone. And by the way, it used to just be called software, right? So all the work, all the analytics, all that work that was done to do customer sentiment analysis and predictive behavior for buyers and the rest of it, that's been going on literally since the turn of the century. And so 
I'm curious what your thoughts on, is there a play where this working with AI will somehow magically, he said, prejudicing the entire commentary of this discussion, make privacy more likely? Maybe. <laughs> here's, what I would, here's what I'd say. <clears throat> um, uh, you can't lose what is already lost or like you don't have, hmm. right? We've, we've already lost everything, right? So whatever bar you set right now for data you're going to protect um, is like, well, everybody kind of has it anyway. Like I, th I think about this as like a non-disclosure agreement. Basically like, hey, like we're not going to disclose anything except if it's publicly available, then it's fair game, right? All of our data is publicly available. Like I don't know what else you're going to do here, mm. right? It's like the, it's like the giant bowl of candy that's out there for like for the teams that is out there saying like, hey, we're we're gonna protect your bowl of candy, your bowl <laughs> of your candy that you actually don't have. <laughs> so yeah, totally doable. But I mean, some like some of these. Let me uh, just find one here. Um, there's one uh, using AI to evaluate how agencies collect and use commercially available information, including information they procure from data brokers and strengthen privacy guidance for federal agencies to account for AI risks. One, I don't even know what the F, F that, that means. means yeah. <laughs> um, but to me, it basically means like there's information that is being publicly collected, commercially collected. By the way, like we can all agree that happens. Yep. Procured from like reputable sources. Brokers, they're selling it. They yeah. are selling it. Yeah. They are intentionally collected it. You have disclosed to the extent that you know. In, in some way, they've bought it from you, right? Yep. Maybe you signed off on it. Yep. Um, and they're selling it. And they're saying they're going to strengthen guidance for federal agencies. You really, really shouldn't use that. <laughs> yeah. I don't, like, the, the bar is just, it's just so low. I don't, like, could you do it? Yeah, maybe. But the bar's low. Super low. All right, moving on. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about something that we both care about a lot, but I think it's sort of misplaced here, which is the idea of ensuring and advancing equity and civil rights. The idea here being that because of the way that algorithms work, a biased data set will create a biased reaction. And it also tells us the thing about AI is it's retrospective. It's almost entirely retrospective. And if we think we're evolving as a society, I don't want to train it on the behaviors I'm trying to evolve from, right? So the reason I've got issues with this is that it talks about treating algorithmic discrimination as the problem. So the algorithm, which is told to look at a certain pile of data and draw from it a certain set of conclusions, that that's what we're going to fix, as opposed to it being the human's responsibility, the business's responsibility, the federal agency's responsibility to do the right thing to make sure that everybody's treated equitably. If the algorithm says these people, then you should, as a function of your job, be responsible for evaluating to see if that's in concert with your values and with the values that we're trying to promote as a society. By whose, whose values? Yeah. Right. Right. It's interesting. I wrote an article on AI. This, um, uh, like 97% sure it was BC, but before wow. COVID. Yeah. Talking about this exact thing. Hmm. It, was, it was basically about bias in the model. Right. Yeah. And I was saying like, listen, I can, I can try to write a model whatever it is. And I can do the best, like I can, the best job I possibly can. I can try to make it as fair and balanced as it possibly can be. Equitable, everything is supposed to be. 
But the reality is like, I'm never going to be able to actually do it just because of everything that's happened to me up until this point to make me who I am. Hmm. Right. And until we solve that, like there's always going to inherently be bias in there in the program, especially uh, for anybody who's capable of writing some of this stuff. Um, Like, let's just be clear. Like there's not millions of people that know how to do this. It's a very small population of people and we're relying on them. And yet it's naturally and inherently going to have their biases in it. Their beliefs, the way of they doing like doing certain things. It's not because they're bad people. It's just a matter of fact, the way we are as humans. Right. And I don't know how we get around that, but it's aspirationally good. Like we should totally do it. Mm. How? I don't know. I know we wanted to make this sort of a short show, but I have one more thing I just want us to talk about yeah. because there's an inherent conflict in the document. So, so far, what I think what we've been saying pretty consistently is aspirationally excellent. It would be nice to see more in the execution end of it, actually trying to do something. Um, I don't think we've said that any of these are bad ideas, just that we, we harbor some reservations about the likelihood of success. This This next one, I just think it just deserves talking about, which is the idea of supporting the workers, right? Because there is language in here, as an example, um, because of the fact that AI can be used as an automating capability, right, and remove the necessity of jobs which can be automated, there is um, statements in here about supporting the right to collective bargaining, which I think we all respect, um, investments in workforce training, et cetera, But the idea is develop principles and best practices to mitigate the harms and maximize the benefits of AI for workers. And the first thing they mentioned is job displacement. For me, this is in conflict, right? If you were trying to generate, and one of the president's or the administration's um, goals in this entire piece is to promote the innovation that the US is is famous for. Uh, We've invested more in AI, uh, through venture investing, what have you, than anybody else. So we really should have a head start on this. We want us to be the most innovative and the most competitive. But the measure of that innovation, at least in my mind, and the measure of that effective competition is the reduction in any number of kinds of jobs. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but that is the outcome. Yeah. If, if, if you're investing in the automotive industry, you're not doing much for the farriers, right? There's not a whole lot of horseshoes going on, right? And so, you know, my view is that this thing is, it requires a lot more thinking about how to balance innovation and then the ultimate displacement of workers in some of those capabilities. And as somebody who's built a lot of jobs, I'm just curious what you think, because I've, I've watched people come here and change their careers from yeah. something that was probably innovated out to something else. And we know in cybersecurity, because of the volume of data, AI has a big role to play in helping us enhance their capabilities, enrich the data sources, decrease the workload. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are on this, what I think is a sort of an apparent conflict. The immediate parallel that I draw would be accountants with calculators, hmm. right? And he's saying when the calculator first came out, yeah, by the way, if you're using a slide rule to do any of your math, yeah, you were out of a job, like very quickly. Um, and the calculator sped up a whole bunch of stuff and all of a sudden we don't need as many accounts. But it doesn't mean they all went away. They had to reinvent themselves. And that's up to the individual. I'm sure there's some people that just threw up their hands and were like, F this. I can't like the calculator, the TI-85 stole my job, <laughs> right? And now they're doing whatever they do. 
Um, but there's a population who said, okay, like I'm going to stand on this thing shoulder and I'm going to be better at like what is be better at something that's more interesting to me. Right. And say the concept of like financial planning and analysis in the absence of a calculator is a non-starter. Like that never would have happened without a calculator. Right on. Um, but only because that things exist now that we can do uh, more advanced business analytics because we can do the financial planning and analysis, but only for the people that have chosen to reinvent themselves. Right. And I think the case is true with the cyber, right? Saying the base level entry level jobs, as AI comes up, some of those jobs are certainly going to go away without a doubt. But it's up to the individual. It's like, are you going to cry on your bowl of cereal? Or are you going to like get up and do something about it? Right. And that's up to the individual. And saying if, if you're going to hang on your bowl of cereal, like that's where you're going to stay. Mm-hmm. Right. And you should probably get out of technology to begin with, because this is just the name of the game. But, uh, if you want to make something out of yourself, like that—that's on you. You got to get up and retool and reskill, right? You got to—you just got to keep up with the shifting technology landscape, and that's just the name of the game. Right on, and and, and I think it is mentioned here some things about workforce training, what have you. But I think there's too much protecting the old job and not as much emphasis on how these smart people who do other kind of jobs could learn how to do something. To your point, standing on the shoulders of the technology to do more. You know, I've spent a lot of time with, like, economic stuff. But, like, the whole idea, like, this is also, like, a free trade principle as well. Um, like, especially on, a, on an international scale. It's saying, like, people are worried about, like, jobs going overseas or whatever. And, like, by the way, like, I'm not wishing that to happen. But um, countries are making certain advancements. And they have earned the right to have those jobs in their countries because we haven't made the same investments on our side to keep up. There's nothing wrong with that. That is just plain economics, plain and simple. Um, but what happens in all those cases is those jobs no longer exist here, whether they're manufacturing jobs or whatever they are, right? But the workforce then has to retool themselves, right? They're going to go back to school and say, you were a laborer before, but now you're maybe going to go into like skills trade or whatever sure. it is, right? And that's just, that's also human nature, right? It's like people aren't just going to hang around and be like, oh, there's no jobs to do. Like, well, you have to find something to put like food on the table, right? right? There's so many examples of this over the history of our lives that civilization that, uh, that apply here too. I like it. So that's a very positive note to end on, right? While there are concerns that are represented here, none of which we're poo-pooing, we are saying, I think, that it will be good to see some execution to keep up with the aspirations that exist here. But if people can take to heart some of the language in here that talks about standing on the shoulders of the technology that's coming out, and worrying less about its negative impact and worrying more about its implementation, its capacity to help us advance the society, then we'll be in pretty good shape. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, when I when I read this fact sheet, of course I get, like, totally depressed in, like, our humanity, right? But I think the, the positive, um, like, like, really trying to take a positive away from it and trying to find a positive slant is um, uh, the fact sheets are good. The FAQs are interesting, right? But whoever writes these things need to understand, like, people reading it have no flipping idea what you're talking about. We haven't educated anybody on what some of this stuff is. Like, and in uh, the words are super high level. They're vague. They can mean multiple different things to different people. Rather, like, what I would like to see, I just think the opportunity here is in the way home is saying you develop a list of best practices, principles, guidelines, saying like, hey, as you start to navigate these waters and you figure out this stuff, like just come back to these basic tenets, like start thinking about these things and how it applies in these cases. 
I bet if they followed that path, most of them would would trace through this. Mm. But um, right now, it's pretty confusing. And I would just say, whoever writes this, if you ever listen to it, just go back to basics. Perfect. Yeah. Good for me. Good for me. All right. If you like this episode, uh, please share it with all your friends. Jack and I will also do yard work for you. Uh, if you listen to this and you recommend it to at least 10 people. Um, and we'll get you on the next episode. <laughs>